0: America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know... One minute. One
1: minute. Okay. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, Afghanistan to Iraq to Lebanon.
0: War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.
1: Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ole Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels.
2: And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also joining from Belgium.
1: Happy New Year! This is our first podcast episode of 2022, and I thought we'd start off with a bit of a departure from some of our usual topics. We're not going to be talking about a specific conflict or even a specific part of the world or an international organization today. Instead, we're going to start the year with a conversation about governance and problem resolution. Specifically, we're going to talk about citizens' assemblies. And a Happy New Year from me, too. Here at Crisis Group,
2: we work every day in efforts to prevent war and shape whatever improves the chances of peace. And to that end, our mission includes supports for good governance and inclusive politics that enable societies to flourish. And I think that we have an underlying assumption that this means the more elections, the better. I guess that's along the lines of Winston Churchill's famous statement that democracy, by which he meant elections-based democracy, is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have already been tried. That said, I'm acutely conscious that much of our crisis group work revolves around potential or actual violence that is triggered by elections. None of us advocate a return to autocracies, monarchies or tyrannies, but I think it's at least worth asking the question, are elections the only way to achieve good governance and inclusive politics? And if not, what are the alternatives?
1: So joining us today to make sense of some of these questions is Brett Hennig. Brett is uh, president and founder of the Sortition Foundation, which campaigns to institute the use of stratified random selection for governance. And he's the author of The End of Politicians, Time for a Real Democracy, that unpacks some of these ideas. He is well qualified for this with a PhD in astrophysics, but also a lot of years thinking about these topics and advocating for them. So, Brett, welcome.
0: Thanks, Hugh. Thanks,
1: So talk to us about uh, sortition uh, as a political system. I think some of our listeners may be familiar with the idea of citizen assemblies, but how does sortition work?
0: Sortition has a very long history. In ancient Athens, they were even randomly selecting uh, people to fill the vast majority of political posts around the sort of central fora. Of course, we don't talk too much about Athens because uh, women were excluded and slaves uh, existed, etc. The modern incarnation, though, is indeed, as you said, citizens' assemblies. And the most famous example being Ireland or Macron's Citizens' Council on Climate Change that's just happened.
2: Which of these has been most successful? I mean, has anything come close to replacing electoral democracy?
0: Nothing's come close to replacing electoral democracy at the moment. They're currently only advisory, even though in Ireland, of course, after the 99 citizens got together and talked about the constitutional ban on abortion and recommended very strongly to remove that ban, they went to a referendum and that referendum was also famously successful.
2: A success in Ireland, but there've been flops as well, haven't there?
0: Well, it all depends on how the politicians ultimately respond to the outcomes of those assemblies and what they've promised up front. So in France, there was a promise to table the outcomes of the citizens' assemblies as they were, but that came up against politics as we all know it uh, in the French parliament. And although some legislation has gone through, the citizens who were randomly selected to participate formed a group to sort of protest the lack of action that had happened there. So it was successful in some ways, but also had some heavy criticisms.
1: So how do you create a citizens' assembly? What's the process of making one of these things happen?
0: The two key ingredients, the random selection of the participants, uh, to make sure that's a representative random selection, and the second key ingredient is to go through an informed deliberative process. So there's the recruitment, and the, the key thing there is that any person in that community could have been selected and that the final assembly is actually a microcosm of the community so half men half women young people old people etc then they go through this informed deliberation phase over a long period of time they often get paid for their participation and then after grappling with those complex topics they come up with recommendations which at the moment are then handed to politicians and put through the typical political grinder if you like
2: Brett, talking just a little bit more about the precise method of selecting these people. I mean, you have a mathematical background. How is it possible to get a kind of mini public that really, truly represents the people better than the elected system we're familiar with?
0: Well, we all know if you look at an elected parliament, it's often very obvious that it doesn't look like the community that's meant to be part of. You know, they're often dominated by men. They're often dominated by older men, wealthier men, all with university backgrounds, etc., Whereas in this case, the process that's done is typically a two-step process. So in the first step, they would send out maybe 10,000 invitations to randomly selected households. Of the people that volunteer and respond to those invitations, they then do a second random selection that corrects any skewing in that original registration. For example, say only older educated men registered, that second random selection would correct that to make sure it actually is representative of the community.
1: So it's jury duty, right? I mean, it's very similar. You get this notice in the mail, it says you should show up. Your work is legally obligated to give you the time and the space. It's a similar model, am I right?
0: It's jury duty in the sense that the juries debate legal matters and these debate policy matters or deliberate on policy matters. It's very different only in the sense, or at the moment, currently, that it's not actually obligatory. You can volunteer if you want. There's nowhere on the planet to date has passed a law saying that your employee has to actually give you time off to attend these events. So we try to reduce the barriers as much as we can. Typically, deliberation happens on a weekend. There's payments, they're offered childcare, they're offered support for any income lost due to lost work, et cetera. But they can only go so far to reduce those barriers. There's always uh, a a lot of people who say, no, I'm not going to give up my Saturday. I have four kids and I'm not going to organise childcare, et cetera.
2: Now, preparing for the show, I read that this has now been tried in the last 10, 15, 20 years, about 600 times. And my wife got a letter through our letterbox here in Brussels last week, asking her to become part of a citizens assembly to work out plans for our neighborhood over the next five years. So Belgium, I think in other areas too, is is really pushing ahead. It seems to be a a bit of a fashion. Can you tell us what kind of problems does sortition-based the deliberation solve best. Just
0: on that uh, Belgium issue, it is really at the forefront, actually. So ost belgian the German-speaking region of Belgium, is actually the first place in Europe to institutionalise a permanent sortition body alongside their parliament. So that's really interesting. And the Brussels parliament, I think, has instituted permanent bodies of mixed committees, politicians and people deliberating. But to answer your question about what type of topics best suited – typically complex problems where there's a political deadlock and you need to weigh up various trade-offs and search for common ground. It's not really suited to yes, no questions, because what you can really get out of these processes is a really sort of deep understanding of why people support certain options and why they don't support other options, and if there is strong minority support or opposition, in fact. So, complex policy issues where there's various options, all which have various trade-offs.
1: So the advantage of this over having a parliament have this conversation or having the executive branch have this conversation is that presumably these people are not motivated by the need to stay in power, but they are probably still at least somewhat motivated by audience effects. They do have to return to their communities. People will ask them questions. They are meant to be representative. To what extent does that become attention?
0: Yeah, they're not the usual suspects that would typically turn up to sort of an open political process. They're not people with really strong predetermined views, and they're definitely not people who have to follow a party line. So what you find is that when you put these people together in a room to deliberate, they will often actively seek common ground. And there's very interesting exercises in the US by James Fishkin called deliberative Polling, where they measure the impact of informed deliberation on changing people's views. And people's views change dramatically and often. And so what you get is a kind of informed public judgment, free of the political kowtowing and bargaining and vested interest groups pulling politicians in each direction. I think that's where their power really lies.
2: So it's better than an opinion, poll, is what you're saying. It's what if Parliament's really deliberated instead of just scoring debating points, they would reach a similar conclusion.
0: That's the idea. In my mind, at least, an ideal democracy is one where a group of open-minded people go through an informed delivery process and come to a decision. Unfortunately, this is just not what we see in our parliaments because they have to follow the party line. They're trying to score political points. The deliberation is performance at best, I think, and spectacle. Whereas this, you really get to that sort of crux of an ideal democracy, if you like.
1: Who does the informing? How do you prepare these folks uh, to make the decisions and how do you ensure that that process is unbiased, right? I mean, a parliament will hear testimony, but that is biased, right? Each party will try to make sure that the people who support the views that they already have will be brought in to testify. So how does this work?
0: Yeah, that's a really key question, actually. And it's one of the most complex parts of the process, actually, is how to ensure that the people giving the information, a diverse bunch of people, but sort of broadly representative of opinion on those topics. Often there'll be a steering group that is committed to those principles up front, to ensuring that a diversity of viewpoints are brought before the citizens' assemblies. But one of the most powerful ways, actually, is After, say, your citizens' assembly meets for the first weekend and they're made aware of all the various policy options and the various people who could actually speak to them, is to actually give that power to the citizens' assembly themselves and say, who would you like to hear from? Okay, you've got to put some constraints on. You don't want them all to just say, well, we want to hear people from this sort of group. You have to say, right, we want to make sure you hear a spectrum of views, but you choose who you'd like to hear from. It's often complex. And another way that people do that is they will have open meeting of all the stakeholders and all the interest groups who are active in that area and try to get that actual group of stakeholders to agree to what is an acceptable spectrum of views. Sometimes there's hiccups. Sometimes some groups feel excluded. But to date, it's happened hundreds of times and quite successfully.
2: So you have a group of people who've come to an advanced understanding of the problem, reached some conclusions, got some recommendations. How do you connect that to actual impact on the ground? Has it actually, apart from the Irish abortion issue that you mentioned, have you seen it actually solve problems?
0: Yes, absolutely. In Poland, actually, there's been some very interesting experiments where the mayor of Gdansk, I think it was, committed up front to implement every decision that had 80% support from a citizens' assembly. They were talking about flood controls in Kadansk, and the people came out with their recommendations and they were implemented. In Ireland, a bit less well-known than the, the, the removal of the constitutional ban on abortion was the referendum on same-sex marriage that also came out of a constitutional assembly as well, previous to that. In France, although the participants of the climate convention some of them were very vocal in their disappointment, it still led to a law, and some estimates I've read was that, say, 40% of their recommendations were implemented. In Australia, in Victoria, where a law has been passed requiring local councils to have a deliberative event as part of developing their community plan, the assumption is that the output of that Citizens' Assembly will heavily inform the community plan endorsed by council.
1: War and Peace, a podcast by
0: the
2: International Crisis Group.
1: You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we are talking to Brett Henning about citizens' assemblies and sortition. So, Brett... One of the reasons that there's often violence around elections, which is something that Hugh mentioned earlier, is because political transitions are unstable things. When you ask people to vote in a society that still need a democracy, they tend to vote along ethnic lines or geographic lines or whatever identities they have available. When societies are polarized, votes reflect the polarization. So the idea here is that you Pull from all sides and try not to create a situation where the process feeds the dividing lines, right? But it still seems to me that the people making these decisions about citizens' assembly going to decide what kind of information they're going to get, they have an awful lot of power to shape. Do you create citizens' assemblies to guide the citizens' assemblies? Kind of keep coming back to how do you staff this in a way that doesn't give the staffers just a tremendous amount of control?
0: Yeah, very interesting question. I assume that you know I'm definitely no expert on this, but in places of crisis when they are having these transitional problems, I assume that it's a large part because it's a kind of winner takes all zero sum situation. If you can get political power, you will have all the resources. You will be able to fund your group to the exclusion of other groups, etc. And so, yeah, there's a power grab and. The electoral system seems to me inherently confrontational. You know, it's us against you. We want to win and you will lose. What the Citizens' Assembly process goes beyond is beyond that confrontational process, and that's where actually – The facilitated deliberative process is really key in any citizens' assembly. So, what you will do is you will randomly select the people to bring them in the room. And that's really key because you won't get the people who would typically be running for office and assume that if they get the power to be them and their group who will get the resources. You randomly select the people, you bring them together. And this informed deliberative process where you break them down into small groups where you have a neutral facilitator in every group to have a respectful discussion, this process is really key. And how you make sure the people running the process don't have undue influence is you ask the participants themselves, and this is what they do in any deliberative process. At the end, they say to the participants, do you think the facilitators unduly influence this process? And it's typically 90% of the participants would say no. And at some point, if they said, well, they did, then okay, you'd want to have some kind of recourse to challenging that or appealing that process. But to date, they're done really well because facilitators' job is to try to remain as neutral as possible.
2: As far as I can see, many of the countries that have experimented with sortition or random selection in these citizens' assemblies, like the United States, Canada, Ireland, Germany, Belgium, fairly rich countries, and virtually no sign of such activity in poorer countries and conflict stricken countries. And it sort of of reminds me of something on Nelson Mandela's autobiography in which he said, one thing I wish that had happened while we were colonized was that if only they'd listened to us a bit, we had ideas too about how things could be better. Are there such ideas out there? Is there interest in such forms of governance in the less rich world?
0: There's definitely been some uh, very interesting examples and experiments. Again, Fishkin's deliberative polls have been held in various countries in Africa and, and South America. There's uh, Delibera Brazil doing stuff in Brazil. There is I for Policy holding events across Africa, actually. And one of the biggest Exciting examples was we helped organize a global assembly ahead of the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow. And so for a first attempt, we only tried to gather together 100 people, but we randomly selected points from all across the globe, proportional to population density. So there was 15 or 16 people from India, 15 or 16 from China, and we brought this representative sample of people together to deliberate on climate change. So it could happen elsewhere, Well, that's one actual disadvantage is they are actually quite resource intensive. So they are expensive events to hold. And so having those resources is sometimes a challenge. But the UN Democracy Fund has also recently funded some experiments outside of the rich nations. So it can be done. It's a resource question, essentially, I think.
1: What about accountability? When I think about accountability, I think of it in two ways. One is if what these folks are doing is feeding elected officials, and you've talked about some ways, right, where in Dansk, right, you had a commitment priori that the elected officials would follow through. Are there ways of doing this to elected officials in a bit more? And then accountability in the sense of how do you force people to do the work and not walk away from it?
0: The best thing that can happen when a citizens' assembly is commissioned by a governing body is for the government itself to, as a bare minimum, commit to publicly responding to the report and giving reasons for why they will or will not follow the recommendations of that report. Scotland has done this very well recently when Scotland had the Climate Assembly and they also had a previous assembly on the kind of future of Scotland. The government Committed up front to publicly responding to all the recommendations in the report. And they've recently just released their responses to those recommendations. That's a bare minimum commitment from a government to actually stand up and give their response. But what's also happening in Scotland is that. The Future of Scotland Assembly came out with a really strong support, something like 83% of the participants supported the idea of actually setting up a permanent second chamber in the Scottish Parliament, selected by sortition with randomly selected people. We've been pushing to try to actually get the Scottish government to actually enact that recommendation, and that's going to be a bit of a challenge. The key question then that people would have is if you are randomly selecting people into a chamber, how are those people held to account? You can't vote them out, for example. And that's where political accountability of people randomly selected to these bodies is going to be key. And to me, the answer to that is that they still have to stand up and give reasons for their actions. They still have to say, we decided to do this because, and the media should make sure that they're very clear on what they're doing. Of course, you need to have civil liberties. So if people disagree, they can come out on the streets and protest, et cetera. So that the structures of accountability that you don't have with elections have to be sort of transferred to the media, to civil liberties, et cetera.
2: On the question of accountability, the local municipality of Scharbek has told the group deciding on the future of our neighborhood that they will have to give exactly that, reasoned explanations of why they don't do things that they recommend. So clearly the message is getting through. But just to go back a bit further into what uh, Olia said, I mean, uh, we started with a bit of Winston Churchill about why democracy was the best of the worst. But he also has another quote about democracy, which he said, the, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the common man. What's your experience of that? Are ordinary people randomly selected? Do they have as much common sense as politicians have? Has anyone looked at that? Are they as expert as anyone else in reaching opinions?
0: Is the worst argument against electoral democracy a five-minute conversation with a politician? I'm not sure. But at the outset of this sort of deliberative experimentation, and one of the most famous examples was in 2004 in British Columbia in Canada when they had a a very large citizen deliberation on electoral law. At the outset, there was lots of hand-wringing around, oh, can ordinary people in that kind of disrespectful way actually deliberate effectively and grapple with complex issues, To date, no one is ever questioning that ability anymore. After hundreds and hundreds of examples of very complex topics going for weeks and weeks and weeks, for example, the UK Climate Assembly was eight weekends long, so 16 days of full deliberation and information overload, and people really rise to the challenge they can comprehend what the experts say, they can question them with good topics, they can work together and sort of use this idea of collective intelligence to become smarter than the sum of the parts.
2: And you say this even having worked as a taxi driver where you must have been exposed to an enormous variety of people.
0: (laughs) So of course, and this is a common response to saying randomly select people is, oh my god, what about Tracy from number 34 or whatever, you know, someone, everyone knows an someone that they think is an idiot who lives down the street who they were really hoping won't be selected there. But what you actually see when you randomly select these people and put them into an informed, facilitated discussion is that they do rise up to that challenge and they do come up with really intelligent, well-thought-out recommendations that politicians also find useful because it breaks down the barriers and allows them to act in topics that maybe they've been blocked because of the vested interest pulling in different ways.
1: What are your thoughts about the utility of this in societies that are deeply polarized or on topics that are deeply polarized? I mean, and I do come back to some of the places where we work, where your randomly selected set of people are going to loathe their neighbors just as much as their elected officials are. In fact, that's why they elect those elected officials, because they elect them for their degree of loathing for the other guy. And gal and unidentified person. So, you know, how can a citizens' assembly overcome this?
0: So, I suspect, and again, I'm no expert, this, but I suspect that the people who are elected in those societies are almost the most polarizing, and so electing to win an election in that situation, you have to show that you really adhere to the extremes. And then putting those people in a room and saying, right, come to common ground is never going to get anywhere. Also, because those people who are elected have to prove that they are actually, you know, satisfying their mandate of holding that ground. Whereas, Once you bring the randomly selected people in together, I suspect they would be far less polarised than the people that you see on Twitter or on Facebook or who stand up publicly and say this thing. Yeah, again and again with groups that facilitate public political discussions is if they have an open meeting, it's a nightmare. Everyone who turns up to that open meeting is the person who has an axe to grind, who has a very fixed idea on what should be done and how, and facilitating that is awful. When you facilitate a group of randomly selected people, though, who are very typically not your usual suspects, and you start off with a whole discussion about, okay, let's lay some groundwork, some ground rules, let's lay some framework for discussion, and everyone says, yeah, we should talk respectfully, we should listen to each other, and you have a facilitator in every group of eight people saying, whoa, you're breaking the ground rules, ha, hang on. you've never spoken, or you're speaking too much, please be quiet, then that process really helps these people find common grounds. And that's what we find again and again. Like in Ireland, no one I don't think would have thought there was going to be movement on the constitutional ban on abortion until we got this randomly selected group of people in a room. And I think it could happen in more extreme situations. I live in Hungary and it's quite a polarized society from what I see. And so here we're really trying to push for a citizens assembly because I think actually you can heal that polarization through these processes.
1: What's the optimal size for such an assembly? Because this process you're describing requires a lot of give and take and a lot of engagement. You know, if you have more people, you do have more audience effects. So listening to you, it sounds to me like you're talking about smaller groups, actually. But then if it's smaller, how representative is it?
0: So here it's really good to reflect on its analogy with the jury process. Because the whole idea, if you put these 12 people in a room in a legal jury, the whole idea is that that group of 12 people put through an informed deliberative process would come to the same conclusion that any group of 12 people would come through given the same situation. That's the sort of theory of juries. And this citizens assembly, it's the same thing, but applied to a political process. So if you grab 50 or 100 people, the idea is that any 50 or 100 people Put through this same informed deliberative process would came to more or less the same conclusions. And so what that tells you, it's not about how many people in the room, as long as you get beyond the sort of certain limit of size. And the certain limit is roughly about 50, actually. With 50 people, you can have a good gender balance, you can have a good age balance, you can have a balance across say five or six different geographic regions, you can have a balance across say five or six different sort of socioeconomic categories. So with about 50, you can really say in terms of gender, age, geography, socioeconomic, perhaps something else, it's broadly representative. That's why we find in well, in Ireland there were 100 people assemblies. In France, it was 150 people. When groups have tried to do it with say 300 people, they actually go, "Whoa!" That you don't get any bonus, any extra, other than making life hard for yourself by scaling it up to that kind of level.
2: Brett, tell us a little bit more about your personal journey and to help people begin to travel along the path. Because you started out as an activist as being against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, a bit like crisis group, perhaps, and, but you've ended up writing this truly excellent book, The End of Politicians. Can you tell us how you moved from being an anti-war activist to a pro sortition activist? Is there a lesson for us in that?
0: I guess at some point in my life, I became politicized and realized that I had to get out of my seat and actually try to do something if I thought the world should change. So, yeah, I went through a sort of activist phase. I then joined a political party, actually, and, and climbed up the greasy pole inside a political party came out very, extremely disillusioned. So working on the outside is really hard and challenging and often has no effect. On the inside, it's just like full of egos and people who really just want to win the next election, no matter what the cost. So then I just started reading about the history of democracy and the theory of democracy and stumbled across the and just had my sort of epiphany where the lights came on looked around for an organization that was working to promote Saltishan, couldn't find one, so helped set up the Saltishan Foundation. So, if you're disillusioned and disappointed with the current political status quo, then uh, welcome aboard.
1: (laughs) So, I think that will be the note we close on. Thank you, Brett. Uh, This was a really interesting conversation. Listeners, if you would indeed like to join up or at least to learn more, the Sortition Foundation has a website, uh, sortitionfoundation.org, and they have a Twitter handle, which is at sortitionnow.
2: And at Crisis Group, we currently have no work on sortition, but perhaps one day, who knows? In the meantime, we are working especially hard on uh, conflicts. And if you want to see our work on Europe and its neighbors, check out our regional pages on the left hand side of our website, crisisgroup.org.
1: You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Oliker. Check us out also on Facebook and Instagram where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group.
2: And please do tweet at us with any suggestions you have for the podcast or email us at uh, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. We will be looking out for them. And of course, we would love it if you would leave us a rating or a recommendation as well.
1: I recently checked the iTunes uh, and our last review is like a year old. So come on. Reviews. Give us reviews. Tell us what you think. War and Peace is a partner in the network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Please do check out some of the others.
2: Big thanks to our producer, Bull Media, and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who helps us get prepared for every one of these episodes.
1: And Brett, thank you again for joining us today. Really enjoyed having you on the show.
0: Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Olga.
1: And listeners, our biggest thanks, as always, are to you. We are looking forward to talking to you once again in just about two weeks. But for now, goodbye.
2: Goodbye and all the best for the new year.
1: War and Peace, a podcast by the International
0: Crisis Group.